Welcome to the podcast of the fabulous Las Vegas Rotary Club. My name is Michael Gordon, and I'm proud to serve as the 95th president of the greatest Rotary Club in the world. Our club serves our local and international community through a variety of projects, but our main focus is on youth literacy. If you're ever in town for either business or pleasure, we invite you to join us at one of our weekly lunches. More information about meeting time and location can be found at lasvegasrotary.com. Now, sit back and enjoy this week's speaker. We are really happy to uh, introduce and to have here today Mr. John Case. And Mr. Case is a Kiwanis, and he's here with Howard Naylor, a fellow Kiwanis, and so we're going to be seeing them again very shortly, uh, later in November. And John Case is a geotechnical, retired geotechnical engineer, and he was involved for about 24 years with the Yucca Mountain Project. So I'm sure he's going to have some very wonderfully interesting things to tell you about that particular project. And as Las Vegans, we're all very interested in that, I know. So John Case, thank you so much. One of the questions my wife is often asking me is, oh, one of the questions that she's asking me all of the time is just why do you have such a great interest in the Yucca Mountain Project? I'm after all, I, I retired from the Yucca Mountain Project about 10 years ago. I've been retired from nuclear waste management for about three years. And just what is it about it? And shouldn't you be spending more time with your granddaughter? Meet Paisley Ann Case, and the sign, if you can't read it, says, after 896 days in foster care, my granddaughter was adopted on the 20th of April, 2017. Wow. Well, it's really true I should spend more time with her. <coughs> I have to tell you, I am just totally intrigued by the, the Yucca Mountain Project. For if on the one hand it goes forward, there will be no doubt, in my mind, a Supreme U.S. Supreme Court decision which will uphold the science. And 100 years from now, we will think about that decision as being as important to American history as Shays' Rebellion was to the formation of the Constitution or... <coughs> Um, the Whiskey Rebellion during President Washington's first administration. But today what I'd like to do is go through nuclear waste problem definition, Nuclear Waste Policy Act, nuclear waste disposal based upon science, DOE submittal of license application, and NRC review. And then I'm going to talk, talk about recent uh, legislation, and then, of course, I want to answer your questions. So let's talk about the definition of the problem. About a quarter of the energy in the United States is generated by nuclear power. What we do is we take uranium pellets, we fabricate fuel rods, the fuel rods are bundled together, we insert the fuel rods into the reactors, and uh, we generate a controlled fission with splitting of the abdomen, which is an exothermic reaction. We generate electricity. Now, the problem with this is that 
problem is, is the waste, uh, well, after a period of time, we have to remove the fuel rods from the reactor, and it's uneconomical to use them. They become spent fuel. Now, this material is hazardous and very radioactive. All people that are involved in this subject will agree on that. There's also a second form of waste that comes from weapons production. Now, the problem is that when the nuclear power plants were built in the late 60s, mid-70s, they only had temporary storage in mind. And so the idea, going back to the 1957 uh, National Academy of Sciences report, was that ev eventually we would need to dispose of the waste in a mine geologic repository. So what did Congress do in 1982? They passed the Nuclear Waste Policy Act. <clears throat> and among the many different things that it did, it established a process of how do you identify a site, how do you provide detailed site characterization for that site, repository design and analysis, license application, construction authorization. So the, the law was written to identify this process. Now, it also said that the second that the, com the commercial spent fuel came out of the reactors, it was owned by the federal government. I don't think there was ever a question about the weapons defense high level waste being owned by the government. And most importantly here, and you can see I've bolded these two bullets, it established two entities. And the two entities were the U.S. Department of Energy on the one hand in one tennis court with the national labs, so we know what those national labs are. It's Los Alamos, Sandia, and Lawrence Livermore. They would conduct the science. I should also mention the U.S. Geological Survey. And they would make submittals, and they would then serve the ball over the tennis court to the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission, which will promulgate regulations, the performance requirements for the repository, providing licensing and construction authorization. There was also independent peer review by the Nuclear Waste Technical Review Board. And of course, there was the uh, mill levy that was <coughs> imposed on consumers of electricity for, that went into the Nuclear Waste Fund for the various scientific activities. Now, as we all know, the law was changed in 1987. Nevada was identified as being the sole site for the repository. And of course, it, is, it was a political decision. There can be no question about it being a political decision. But the thought I would leave you with is that there was some information of a preliminary nature that actually favored Yucca Mountain at that time. So let's talk about the recent history of the project. So 30 years go by, U.S. Geological Survey is out there doing exploratory drilling. The labs are involved in their various experiments out at Fran Ridge and underground in the exploratory studies facilities. And what happens is, is that this leads to the culmination of the license application submitted by DOE in June 2008. The NRC docketed that license application three months after that time, and the law said that the NRC had three months or three years to review the license application. Now, as we all know, in 2008, candidate Obama is 
is campaigning in Nevada. He is opposed to the project. He gets elected in January or in November 2008, goes into office in January 2009, and in August of 2010, he terminates the project. Initially, he says that the science was bad for the project, but when he was challenged on that, actually came up with, well, the policy is not workable. So then there was also the suspension of the Atomic Safety and Licensing Board hearings in 2011. And then DOE withdraws the license, or it should say they attempt to withdraw the license. So now what happens when you have a major project that spent $15 billion that suddenly comes to an end? Well, one of the things you're going to do is you're going to have a blue ribbon commission on new America's nuclear future. They'll conduct hearings to find out what happened. They go ahead, they do their fact finding, and essentially they come up with these recommendations. They say the approach should be consent-based to licensing. There should be a new organization empowered with authority, like the Tennessee Valley Authority, uh, that wouldn't be separate from the congressional budget cycle. And there should be a prompt effort to develop multiple facilities, because after all, the licensed repository at Yucca Mountain only has 77,000 metric tons uranium capacity, whereas we've generated 110,000. And of course, there's always the support for innovation in nuclear waste technology. Oops. Okay, so let's talk about the legal challenges. Another thing that happens is there are stakeholders in Washington, South Carolina, and um, initially uh, private citizens, and they sue, sue the DOE in federal court saying it was against the law for Obama to stop the project. The appellate court in Washington rules on Aiken 1 saying no, it was within his authority to stop the project. But there is a second lawsuit that happens. It's called Aiken 2 where the lawsuit is about the NRC. And so the tennis ball has been served from USDOE over to the NRC, and this time the appellate court ruled in favor of the plaintiffs and said that by law, the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission must complete their safety evaluation report. What did the NRC do? They issued these five volumes. Now, of the five volumes, volume three and volume four are the most important. Volume three was the science. What is the post-closure? Uh, does, does the repository meet the post-closure requirements as outlined by the NRC? The volume four dealt with land withdrawal, which Congress has to do for the project, and water rights. Here's the thing I would leave you with. This independent agency over here, independent from all of the people that were involved in the research, has come to near complete agreement about the project. Okay, near complete agreement. So what does this mean? First of all, there were the two issues with regards to land withdrawal. New legislation is, is going forward through the House right now. There was a vote by 49 to 4. And so one thing that I would leave you with, people in Nevada, and the reason that I think that it's going to go to the Supreme Court, 
is that the state of Nevada and the federal government are on a collision course on this because the vote was 49 to 4. Okay. I suspect any, within another week or two, you're going to see a significant bipartisan majority voting on the project. What would the project do? It would withdraw the land, increase the capacity, try to address this issue of water rights. Now, let's talk about the budget. $120 million has been proposed. We should put that into perspective. If you took the $15 billion, you took 30 years, that's a burn rate of $500 million a year. So the federal government is spending about a quarter of what they were spending 10 years ago. But what will that money be used for? It will be used for licensing in the Atomic Safety uh, Board licensing. And what do we expect to happen? Expert witnesses are going to be called by the state. They have about uh, 300 contentions. Expert witnesses will be sworn in. There will be rules of evidence and cross-examination. And eventually, I think that process is going to rule on the science at Yucca Mountain. And with that, I will take any of your questions. I'm supposed to. Wait for the microphone. Microphone is coming. Oh boy. Let's let's add the things that are missing from the presentation. When Brian Sandoval was the Attorney General, I escorted the governor and we went through the rural communities. One of the ways that it was being sold was you're going to get money and you're going to get significant money if you put the dump in Nevada. So that's number one and I don't see anything about the money, especially uh, the money that's going to be going into um, the communities. Number two, Brian Sandoval is governor. Our two senators, our four members of Congress, the mayor, both present and immediate past, said, over my dead body. It's interesting who is for it, because guess what? And, I, and I'm being as respectful as I can because they don't want it. And guess what? Either do we. Okay. You know, what I don't understand is why can't they recycle this nuclear waste if it's as hot as it is? Well, one of the problems with recycling is that it's expensive. And what has been found to be true is, say if you went back 30, 40 years ago, the thought was, yes, we'll recycle. But what's happened in the meantime is the cost of yellow cake has gone down, and so, and the cost of recycling is high. So only the French do it, and uh, the British actually abandoned recycling. So the technology just isn't there to do it in a cost-effective way.
I worked for Bechtel Corporation when I got out of college. They offered me a job. When I graduated from college, I worked for Bechtel Corporation and actually for 34 years, and I retired eight years ago. So um, while you were at Yucca Mountain, I was uh, doing the National Center for Combating Terrorism at the Nevada test site. But I would like to uh, say that uh, as far as uh, recycling goes, you can only recycle it so many times, and then it's not worthwhile. It's not e efficient. But um, what, what you haven't mentioned is that the state of Nevada is rated number four out of 50 for earthquakes. So that's something I think that uh, needs to be talked about. So, Mr. Case, I, you know, uh, we're honored that you came to talk to us, and we have a rule that you can disagree, but you can have to do it politely. And I want to thank you because you're the first person that I've ever heard, and I belong to a lot of organizations, that actually said that the site selection process was never based on the science. It was based on politics. And then every year after that, since 1987, which, as you know, we call the Screw Nevada Bill, every year after that has been spent to justify a political decision. And so I have a friend back east there. He's my best friend, essentially, and he's a senior mid-level manager for the NRC. But he's on the nuclear power plant testing side. And I ask him about it. He lives in Maryland. And he says, well, everybody I talk to says the science is sound. And I said, really? So those caskets you see, that they're going to transport them in, and the train hits it and nothing happens? He says, yeah, that's right. And I said, well, did you know that actually that never was intended to be the casket, and the casket hasn't been designed yet? Did you know that? He says, no, I didn't know that. I said, did you know there's an active fault line because my sh house shook within how many miles of Yucca Mountain that they didn't know about when Congress took the weakest state and said, it'll be in Nevada? We have an active fault line. And then... You know, there's a lot of things. Uh, let's talk about water. Oh, the desert's dry. Well, not only does the desert dry, but there's water flowing through there, which is highly reactive to stainless steel, if I'm not correct, which mm -hmm. is what the, the steel permanent cases are going to be. And so I don't know if you worked on this, but, you know, the state-of-the-art scientific design is to put titanium awnings over the casket so as the water drips down, it won't hit that casket for the next 10 million years, but then that's been reduced to a million years, and then it's re been reduced to 10,000 years. And what, what is it now? I think it's uh, 1,000 years? Well, no, the standard uh, actually changed after the lawsuit that occurred in 2002, where the state sued um, with regards to the science. And what happened was is that um, the, uh, the standard was changed to a million years. It had been 10,000 years, and it was changed to okay. a million years. So I have two questions. France vitrifies their nuclear waste. They turn it into a glass-like substance, which is easier to handle. Right. Uh, that my, that's question number one, and then I'll just tell you my second question, and I'll shut up. Um, what's wrong with doing another site selection based on science and not politics? So when I hear that it's based on science, it's good science, and I bring up all these things, oh, we've solved for that, we've solved for that, 
what I'm told is that it was supposed to be 90% natural barrier, 10% man-made barrier. Now it's generally 90% man-made barrier, 10% natural barrier. Well, I would water. tend to disagree with that. I think that if you went back to 10 CFR 63, when it was the regulations were first promulgated and in confidence rulemaking, there's always been engineered barriers associated with repository isolation. If you go to Sweden, you take a look at what they do, they use bentonite and 20 centimeters of copper. Okay, so, so my, always, my, so my real question is this. Why don't they start over and do a science-based site selection process? Maybe Representative Shimkus from Illinois, where all the power plants are, would go for that. But you know what, he'd lose the next election if he went for that. In fact, any member of the House or Senate that says, okay, let's open it up to the 50 states and let's let science do it, they're done. It's, it's the, the NIMBY, problem, it's the not in my backyard. And, I, and I'm going to shut up now and thank you. You, you know, you're right. And, and, and I'll be the first here to say that, that the 1997 law cut short the detailed site characterization of multiple sites. I will, I will say that. Congress had decided to do it serially. They said, we'll, we'll take a look at the first candidate site, and if DOE had found anything wrong with it, then we would go to another one. But I do agree with you. But I guess the point I would try to leave you with is that you're going to have to eventually come up with a total systems performance assessment. And it's going to have to weigh in many different factors. And some of those factors are going to be favorable to the repository. This report I wrote, 1987, 30 years ago, says, concludes, that when it comes to repository sealing, there are advantages at Yucca Mountain, just backfill it. There are not advantages to a saturated repository. On the other hand, if you went to what Dr. Allison McFarland says, who is a critic of the project, in this book right here. She's in favor of a reducing environment. So one of the questions is, just how do you combine these different aspects of, of the repository design analysis isolation together? You have to come up with a total system performance assessment. And let me tell you what's going to happen. When that goes to the court, you're going to have those expert witnesses. And I'm very confident, I'm actually hopeful, <coughs> I should say confident, that a lot of the issues will be resolved because there will be scientists and engineers who are trying to come to a resolution. And that's, that's the way I feel about it. Oh, let's see. Okay. Parliament. Thank you, Mr. Case, for coming and presenting a uh, perspective. Um, having worked on the Yucca Mountain Project for three years, I also have a perspective. First of all, Bob, you're wrong. It is not a dump. A dump implies something that's, that's not manageable. It, uh, the attempt is to make it a repository which has the opportunity of withdrawing that and recycling it someday if it ever becomes uh, appropriate and affordable. The issue that I'm really concerned about, Mr. Case, and you mentioned it, how many, uh, how many power plants do we have around the country that are temporarily storing this stuff? 120, something like that? I don't well, know. Yeah, there's something like about 120. And one of the things that's important to recognize is that there are now about a dozen where there was once one a nuclear power plant, and now there is just a decommissioned power plant 
with spent fuel at that site, much of it in spent fuel pools, like at what, what the situation at Fukushima. So here's the reality, folks. You have, have 77,000 metric tons of pellets being stored temporarily in ponds around the country. You don't think that's a target for a possible catastrophe? If you don't think so, you're wrong. There has to be a national urgency to gather that stuff up and secure it someplace. It may not be Nevada, but Nevada's test site is 1,200 feet below the surface of the ground. It is 90% natural barrier. 90% natural barrier. So we have to get on board and find a place to bring that stuff someplace and secure it, or we are waiting for something to happen. And I'm thank you very much for your time. Thank you for coming and presenting. I, so, being someone that's an expert in nuclear waste management, can you touch on the two different? From my research, there's two different types to, of nuclear power generation. One that actually reuses the same waste and it's actually a smaller reactor and actually produces less waste as opposed to the reactors that most of us are currently using that actually produce a lot of waste and are quite larger. Are, is there any, can you touch on that and what is the government's long-term vision in terms of maybe even changing to something that actually produces less waste? Well, one of the things that happens with nuclear waste management is, of course, there's a relationship with weapons production, weapons, uh, nuclear weapons proliferation. And one of the reasons why spent fuel in the United States is not recycled is that because in 1979, President Carter made a decision that uh, commercial spent fuel would not be recycled. And it's true that nuclear technologies are changing all the time. And at some point in the future, maybe the nuclear technology will be able to address this problem. But at the present time, you have so many of the, uh, you know, the spent fuel working in reactors from the late 60s, mid-70s that is, is waste. And uh, so, you know, the thought is to put it into a mine geologic repository, which will isolate it from the environment. One more? Well, one of the questions, you know, is, is that you always have, you know, STEM, you know, STEM, Rubik's Cube, STEM, science, technology, engineering, math. You can look at it from the standpoint that science is good and, and that's what we should do. But the question is, do we have the technology to send, send waste up into space when, you know, what is the probability that the space shuttle might actually crash? About one in fifty. <laughs> it's Does that yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you. Thank you for your presentation. Yes. And and John said he'll be available for questions afterwards. John, in three weeks, we'll meet again for the true face-off of the canned food drive. So now you know what we got. But before that, we would like to present you with our. Share What You Can Award, where we're going to present a hot meal to a homeless vet in your name. So thank you for, for speaking to us today. Um, and then, like I always say, Rotary is like tennis. The one who serves best usually wins.
Now go forth and make a difference. Thank you for joining us for another wonderful meeting of the Rotary Club of Las Vegas. If you're interested in membership or want to know more about our upcoming projects and speakers, please visit lasvegasrotary.com for more information. Now go forth and make a difference.